You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Heavenly Father, give us faith to receive your word, understanding to know what it means and wills to put it into practice. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, it had been a long day. The kids are finally asleep. Joe and Mildred flop down in front of the television. Uh, the, The stories batter their senses. Yet another war is breaking out in another part of the world that had already been battered by famine and economic disaster. Yet another awfully violent crime has been committed in their neighbourhood. Then there are the advertisements about destitute children who could be helped by some small cash donation from people. Joe and Mildred wonder, how should we react to all of this? We know God. We know his son, Jesus Christ. How would God have us act toward these things? Zachary is in church on Sunday morning. He sits in the, place, uh, in the same place as usual and the usual suspects are arriving and uh, in the usual rush. The leaders are rushing around They're trying to find the various people who are responsible for things that are happening. Then Zachary notices Russell again. Now, Russell is a single man, not attractive in looks, somewhat overweight and and a little bit unkempt and a bit socially awkward and difficult to talk to. He sits in his usual seat. As usual, no one talks to him. He will stand around at morning tea for 20 minutes hoping that someone will, but then he'll give up. And he'll begin the lonely walk home to lunch on his own. Now, Zachary also knows God. He knows his son, Jesus Christ. What is an appropriate response? How would God have him act toward Russell? Claire, well, she works as a team leader in an IT company. She looks across at Mark, as she often has in these last few weeks, and he is deeply engrossed in interacting with something on the computer screen. It looks like it might be work-related. But Claire knows it probably isn't, except in a peripheral way. She looks at her own computer screen. She notices how few jobs he has completed in comparison to the others in the team. This morning, yet another complaint had come in from a client about the quality of his work. Now, Claire also is a Christian. She knows God. She knows his son, Jesus Christ. And she wonders, what might an appropriate response be in this context? How would God have me act here? Friends, what I'm trying to do with all these illustrations, which were out of my own creative mind, (laughs) um, we are caught in a world of complexity, aren't we? Wherever we are, whatever we do. And those worlds demand responses from us. And today, we're going to have a look at some people in the Bible who live in the same world as we do, with the same ambiguities as we have. They too are forced to make decisions they too will seek to make those decisions in a way that honours the God that they have come to know. My hope is that as we observe these people in this chapter today, we might learn from them. My hope is that as we read God's word, he might speak to us about our situations, help us think uh, right and act right. So that in mind, have your Bibles open at this chapter again. Now, Let's remember the story so far, just to remind you. 
In the early days of Israel's history in the Promised Land, there was no temple. There was no king over Israel. Rule was by judges and life in the land was fairly fragile. It was in these days that there was a man called Elimelech. He had a wife called Naomi and two sons. In chapter 1 of this book, we learnt that because of famine, the family had moved to the land of Moab. However, disaster strikes. Elimelech dies. His sons take foreign Moabite wives. One of them is a woman called Ruth. But then the sons also die, leaving Naomi in a foreign land without the support of men and with two dependent foreign women. And she's not wealthy. Then in verse 6 of chapter 1, Naomi hears that the Lord has brought relief to his people back in Judah. So she decides she'll return to her own homeland. We heard last week that one of the daughters-in-law decides she will go with Naomi. And in the last verse of chapter 1, they arrive back in Bethlehem. Faithfulness, fruitfulness has returned to God's land. And we wonder whether fruitfulness and blessing will return to Naomi. And that's where we end chapter 2. So that's the background, that's where we are. And immediately this glimmer of hope for these women comes about. Look at verse 1. We hear of a relative of Naomi's. He's a prominent man of noble character whose name is Boaz. And he's a man of substance. And the Hebrew used here conveys the image of a man of wealth who's a pillar of society. He's a man of substance financially and of substance socially. Immediately, a sense of hope is stirred in us. He's kin of Naomi, you see. He's pillar of society. He has wealth. Perhaps he might actually help. Perhaps he might be part of this mechanism of turning the bitterness of Naomi to something other than bitterness. Now look at verse 2. It's the barley harvest. Now, in other words, it's a great opportunity for women to put together some food for the year. Look at verse 2. The initiative comes from Ruth, and she takes initiative. She says to Naomi that she will go and see if she can gather food. She hopes that she might find someone in whose eyes she might find favour. Naomi agrees, but doesn't go herself. Anyway, you see, um, I need to explain a little bit more about Israelite law here. Uh, Israelite law was concerned about the poor in Israelite society. It outlined the way in which the poor could be looked after within the country. And one of those ways was to tell landowners by law that when they harvested, they weren't to be too rigorous in their harvesting. For example, when they shook the olive trees to shake down all the olives, they were not to climb up afterwards and make sure that they had every single olive from the tree. No, they were to leave the olives that didn't just naturally fall. And they were to be for the poor. Same sort of thing happened when you're harvesting the fields. If some bits of grain were left over by accident, you left them there for the poor. These leftovers were called gleanings. Now, she, that's what Ruth is after. She's after some gleanings of any sort, something that would feed the stomach. And she finds a likely field and she stands there waiting for the harvest to begin and hoping that she'll be able to gather up some of the crumbs, the gleanings. Now, at this point, I want you to imagine what Ruth might realistically expect. Imagine the scene. Harvest time. Famine has been... Landowners have had bad crops for some time. They will be seeking to put things back in the stores. 
They'll be seeking a bumper crop. The poor of the land will, will not have had a good supply of food for a long, long time. They'll be hanging around seeking to get whatever they can. And into that situation walks a foreign Ruth. Not a local, a foreigner. A woman in a man's world, foreigner in an Israelite world, a Moabitess. And remember what we discovered about Moabitesses before? They opposed Israel's entrance into the promised land, so people won't be disposed towards helping them. They opposed, they, the law explicitly said they were to be excluded from the congregation of God's people. Numbers 22 and 24. Now, what do you think Ruth is going to expect? Anticipate? Not much. Not much. At best, she could expect a very human response. It might be discriminatory, it might be violent or abusive, certainly it's not likely to be welcoming. You can see that later in the chapter. Look at verse 9. Boaz intimates that Ruth might have been exposed to harassment of the young men. Look at verse, um, uh, look at verse 22. Naomi talks about her possibly being bothered or assaulted. So that's the reality of what she might expect this day. Let's take a look at what actually happens. Verse 3 tells us that she, in inverted commas, if I could put it this way, happened to enter the portion of the field that belonged to Boaz. The words she happened have all the connotations of chance. Sort of equivalent to, as luck would have it. Um, so, as luck would have it, she found a person in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz and Boaz notices Naomi. And he asks after her, verse 5, and she finds out she's a Moabite. She also finds out she's associated with Naomi. Now look at verse 8. Boaz addresses Ruth. He says, come and, come and glean here in my field alone. He offers her protection from possible harassment. Verse uh, 9. He also promises her to her, uh, giving her access to water. So she's not going to... She's, she's, she's going to survive out in the sun. And at mealtime he offers her food from his own table. In fact, he feeds her so abundantly she has stuff left over that she can take home. Boaz then instructs the men to ensure that the gleanings are supplemented by extra, you know, a little bit on the side as well. Um, in fact, he feeds her so abundantly that she has food left over. Verse 17 tells us at the end of the day, she has an ephah, 26 quarts of barley, which is an extraordinary amount of food in a day. Can you hear what's being said? It's very important. As best, Ruth might have expected a legal response. However, she experienced generosity and abundance. Boaz had been for her a provider, a protector, an extravagant benefactor. He's gone well beyond what the law prescribed. He's gone well beyond what Ruth might have expected. This is extraordinary stuff. You don't read it because you perhaps know the story too well and don't hear it. Let's move now to the last few verses of the chapter. In verse 18, Ruth returns to Naomi and Naomi sees what she has gleaned. She recognises that there's been something special happen this day. Look at her, verse 19, she says, where, where did you gather barley today? And where did you work? Then she reflects on the incident theologically, verse 19, she asks after the man's name. Ruth tells her, the name of the man I work with today is Boaz. And Naomi recognises the hand of the Lord in this. Look at her words, she's, 
She has been a, he has been a protector, he has been an extravagant benefactor and Naomi uses the, um, the word we learnt last week. Do you remember that word? Do you remember the Hebrew word I taught you? Look at what she says. This work has been an unexpected extravagant love and kindness and here's my translation of what Naomi says. May the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kesed to the living or the dead. I think Naomi's saying that the actions of Boaz have been a godlike action. The sort of generosity you might expect from God. The sort of thing that Naomi prayed back in chapter 1 that Ruth and Orpah would receive from the Lord. However, back in chapter 1 she seemed to be saying the Lord wasn't showing kesed. Now she's saying he has, he has. He's answered her prayer. She's saying he's not deserted her as he, she assumed. Rather, he's acted according to his nature. He's shown kesed. And now the references to the Lord in relation to Boaz make sense, don't they? Boaz is a man of the Lord. As he indicates in verse 12, his generosity is simply a reflection of the generosity of God, the, the God of Israel of the Lord under whose wings Naomi has sought refuge. You see, Naomi knows the reality. She knows the reaction of Boaz is not just luck or chance. This just didn't happen randomly. No, it's against human expectation. It can only come from God. Ruth is not an Israelite. She has received generosity from the Lord. Ruth is not a servant of Boaz, but she has received generosity from the Lord's man. It's a great combination, isn't it? Brothers and sisters in Christ, this chapter tells this wonderful story. It, it is beautiful. But can you see reality? I, I'm telling you, this is not just a love story, this one. This is something else. It's not just a story of a young woman struggling to find a way ahead in a man's world, no. No, it's not just a story of a well-to-do man showing favour to a foreign woman. No, this is a story about God. That's what it's about. He is the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in chesed and faithfulness. He's a God who cares for his people. But he's also a God who gives shelter to the alien and shows favour to this foreign woman, stranger, sojourner. Now, we who are Christians, we know this God, don't we? If you're a Christian here today, you know this God. In the midst of his ministry, in Luke 13, Jesus refers to his up and coming death. And he uses similar language used of God in this chapter. He talks of how he has desired to gather the children of Israel together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. He talks of how he has been generous and kind. That's the language of Boaz to Ruth in this chapter, in, in verse 12. He talks of the God of Israel under whose wings Ruth has come for refuge. In John 10, though, Jesus switches the language and talks about sheep and shepherd. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is the good shepherd who even has sheep outside the fold who he wants to bring in. He is a good shepherd who does not lay down his life unwillingly. No, in spontaneous, unexpected, overwhelming kindness and love, 
He lays it down willingly. He, he does kesed himself. Can you see what I'm saying? This man, Boaz, is the grandfather of King David. He is the ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a man of God. He acts like God, shows God's overwhelming love to this stranger. And through his descendant, Jesus, God will show overwhelming love to all strangers. He will send his son into the world so that we who are aliens to God's people might experience mercy. Looking around the room, my guess is that if you come from Chinese stock, you're about as far away from Israel as you could get, almost. Right? That is the people who, who gave birth to you way, way back or whatever. And yet he's come to you as well. And to me, born in the middle of the Pacific, he's this good shepherd who lays down his life for those outside the fold. This man, Boaz, is his, is his great, 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 great grandfather. He's the ancestor of Jesus. He acts like God. He shows God's overwhelming love to this stranger. And through this descendant, Jesus, God will show overwhelming love to all strangers. He will send his son into the world so that we who are aliens to God's people might experience mercy. Friends, I experienced this. I put, put a, a couple in hospital as a result of my stupidity driving at 18 years old. I had nowhere to go except to where my parents had told me to go when I was a child. And I ran to him and I confessed my sin and he accepted me. He has acted in Jesus so that all might find refuge under his wings. Friends, just let's see the implications of all of this. In this chapter, Boaz is simply acting like God. I've tried to make that connection. He knows God from his law. He knows that what is known of God in the law is not the full picture of God. God is love. God is kindness. God does not just act rightly or legally. God acts in overwhelming kindness, in extravagant love. That is what Boaz does. He's got it. He acts like God. And we Christians know God even deeper than Boaz did. And so our love, here's the bottom line, friends, so our love ought to be even more extravagant than his. We are called to act upon, to act as like the God we know in Jesus Christ. And that should happen in every area of our lives. In our family life, in our congregational life, in our social life, our evangelistic life. Listen to some of the exhortations that come from the New Testament on this topic. When Paul is advising the Christians of Corinth about their money, he says this, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Do you hear the language? Do you hear the, the logic? God's been rich in generosity toward you. You should be rich in financial generosity, in time generosity. You should forgive as you've been forgiven. You should love and accept as you've been loved and accepted. Friends, this is to be the mark of our lives as Christian people. We are to be known as those who love like God. 
We are to be those like that, not just among those we know, but amongst the stranger, the alien, the refugee, the poor, the disadvantaged, the uncared for. And that's to be so whether the poverty is social or spiritual. To the materially disadvantaged, we are to be rich in material generosity. We are to share the great news of Jesus to the materially, yeah, sorry, and then to the materially disadvantaged, we are to be rich in spiritual generosity. We are to share the great news of Jesus in our words and in the support of those who have gone to share it elsewhere around the world, support of missionaries, for example. We have come to know God who is rich in mercy. Let us call to the world to come and to find shelter under his wings. To come and find shelter under his wings. But you know why? Because he longs to gather the world to himself. With that in mind, let's remember Joe and Mildred from the beginning of the sermon. When Joe and Mildred watch the television, they're to remember God's generosity toward them in Jesus. When Zachary notices Russell in church, do you know what he's meant to do? He's to remember God's generosity to him in Jesus. When Claire looks across at Mark at work and works out her responsibility, she's not to forget God's generosity in Jesus. Let us act wherever we are as God's people. Let's forgive as we've been forgiven. Let us accept as we've been accepted. Let us be generous just as God has been generous to us. Let us love as we have been loved. Welcome as we have been welcomed. Serve others even as we have been served by the King of all the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us already doing this, let me urge you to excel even more. To excel even more. Let us strive to outdo one another in showing love, grace, kindness and God-likeness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your so rich generosity. Father, please help us take this on and please help us to love even as we have been loved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.